This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. This is book 22 of 52 for my 2020 reading list. I wanted to read this book to better understand Edward Snowden, to better understand what he did, why he did it, the circumstances that led to his decision, and then six years later to see if he regretted what he did or if he would have done it all over again. He exposed something that we all knew was taking place to, to some degree. I mean, there was, before 2013, people would joke of, oh, they're, they're listening to your, to your phone, they're, they're, they know what you're, what you're doing online, uh, someone's collecting it somewhere, uh, government, companies. There, was, there, were, there were ideas that this was happening, and you knew it was probably possible but there had never been a comprehensive set of evidence, both of bulk collection and the storage of your information, of your data, storage of my data. There was never that comprehensive list of evidence. And so his revelations through these journalists, that that was the first time that the world saw this all together. And I, I remember that. I remember when they came out in 2013, I was... I was intrigued by what was going on. I didn't exactly know what was going on to the full extent, why this was happening, how this guy was still alive. I mean, all the movies you see, this guy would have been taken care of quite quickly. And so it just, there, it was, it was just so much going on at that point. Uh, but, but even from the beginning, I knew that, that there was something special, that a great evil had been exposed and... I was sympathetic to Snowden. I was sympathetic to what he had done. And so I, I came into to reading this book with the same same mindset of, of, of being sympathetic, but wanting to learn more, wanting to to know what what it was that was exposed and and to be able to to understand it on a on a deeper level. So the way I'm gonna approach this episode is to share three ideas from the book that really startled me. Even coming at it from this from that sympathetic point of view, here are here are three things that really startled me. They struck me in in and I was not expecting of them. So this episode will be three segments and each segment will be one of these three ideas that that uh, that really struck me. And then the last segment uh, as part of the third idea will be the one thing my one key takeaway from this book. So let's get started with segment one, and my first big thing that stuck out to me, and that, and it's this: Snowden's life built up to 2013 in an extraordinary way. I mean, just bizarre—the things that happened, his circumstances that led to him being the whistleblower. So I want to hit some high points, and that 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 show this point. First off, his family line goes all the way back to the Pilgrims and his family line is full of people who fought have fought in every single war in this country's history. So he comes from a family of service people, people who have worked for the government, people who have fought for this country, uh, patriotic people. 
this next thing is is just crazy and i have to read it because it i i still almost can't believe believe this so here we go. Today, the former Snowden fields are bisected by Snowden River Parkway, a busy four-lane commercial stretch of upmarket chain restaurants and car dealerships. Nearby, Route 32, Patuxent, Patuxent Freeway, leads directly to Fort George G. Meade, the second largest army base in the country and the home of the NSA. Fort Meade, in fact, is built atop land that was once owned by my Snowden cousins. And that was either bought from them, in one account, or expropriated from them, according to others, by the U.S. government. End quote. Did you hear that? The Snowden cousins owned the land that Fort George G. Meade was eventually built upon. And the NSA resides on that base. The Snowdens, the Snowden family owned the land that the NSA ended up being built upon. What are the chances? What are the historical chances of that happening? The the man that would become the whistleblower and expose a lot of what went on in the NSA for his family along the line somewhere to have owned that land. That's just crazy. From there, we've got uh, Snowden's mother works at the NSA. She is a an insurance clerk. And But she required full security clearance. Snowden's father was in the Coast Guard, and as Snowden said, his career remains fairly opaque to me to this day. So even with that, we, we see that his father has, has a lot of security clearance, can't talk about what he does. And Snowden just grows up in, in a, a neighborhood in, in an area where this is the case. Uh, a lot of the people in these neighborhoods work in jobs where you just, you know, if you're having a barbecue with or cookout in the neighborhood, no one's really asking what the other person does. You you just you just don't because most of the people have uh, high security positions. In Edward's youth, he hacked his Nintendo. It stopped working, so he hacked it. So he, you see this 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 boy growing up with a, an intense curiosity. He's got an engineering father who who loves to take things apart and try to fix them. And at age eighteen, Snowden becomes a web designer and developer, and works for a lady who lives on the base of Fort Meade. So this lady's husband is an Air Force linguist assigned to the NSA, and. Edward Snowden's boss, this woman, is, is living in in this townhouse, and the townhouse is on the southeastern edge of Fort Meade, and that is the office for this web design company. So Ed drives into work every day, and he's driving into the NSA. He's driving into Fort Meade, uh, right right where NS, the NSA is, and this is at the age of eighteen. Well, one morning, Tuesday morning in September, two thousand one, September eleventh, Snowden is on Fort Meade on September 11th. And he goes home after the planes hit. He's watched him on TV with his boss. And he starts heading home and is shocked because everyone else is also heading home. But this is the NSA. And he's thinking, why are these people not staying at work? These people should be trying to figure out who bought the plane tickets they should be they should be trying to figure out uh, making connections and why is everyone fleeing well later on he found out that uh, the top leadership there thought that the NSA might be a target that day and so he had everyone go home and he and stone just thought this was was a travesty couldn't believe it and so this is one of his first 
first real shocks of, of uh, you know, what is happening? Why, why is everyone leaving? He gets caught up in the fervor after September 11th and decides to join the army. He gets injured during basic training and seeks to use his technical skills for the government instead of, um, instead of being a, a soldier. He goes for a security clearance, uh, top level, a top secret clearance, and he passes that. And that allows him to, to get a job as a contractor. This is the time where it coincided with the intelligence community starting to use contractors. This helped them to avoid caps on hiring. And then, so Stone is working for a contractor who works for uh, the intelligence community. Along the line, Snowden also begins working directly for the NSA and the CIA. So he had unique experience there to where he's working with these different organizations, the NSA and the CIA, and seeing both of their systems, seeing how the systems work. Uh, oftentimes, somebody may just work for one of those, but not both of those. So again, just kind of a crazy, uh, bizarre thing to, to be able to, to be in both of those areas. And, and he is a systems administrator, a, a sysadmin. And he is, as he states, the computer guy can know everything or yeah, the computer guy knows everything or, or rather can know everything. And so as the systems administrator, he's in charge of the documents. He's in charge of the intelligence reports that come in, uh, making sure that, that, uh, that they're in the right place and can be retrieved. So it, the higher ups of these places, they don't know how to get these documents. So if, if they say, hey, I need, I need to know about such and such. Well, it's the system, ad, system admin who's going to go in and, and retrieve that document for them. So Snowden just kind of keeps working his way up. He creates scripts to where he's got a set of jobs that he needs to do, but he, he's smart enough to where he can create these scripts, that does the work for him. And he's also working at night. So he, he has like eight to 10 hours for his shift and he's created scripts to do all the work he needs to do. He just has a, a bunch of free time to browse and he has access to some of the most secure documents in the entire world. And so he, he goes back to his curiosity and starts reading through these documents. Uh, later on, we see he's He's in CIA training and uh, doesn't like something management is doing and confronts the management. Uh, they don't do anything. And so he confronts the management's management's management. So he goes three le- three levels up and uh, that does not endear him to his management. And uh, his manager says, I'm not going to have another Edward Snowden moment, am I? It's kind of a funny uh, fore- foretaste of what was to come. Later on, Snowden is in Hawaii. He's working as a contractor for Dell, but he is basically with the NSA at this point in in Hawaii. And major turning point where he has access to a document that has been released to the public. And they said that this is just the redacted version of the official version. But Snowden has access to the official version, and he realizes that the redacted version is not anything like the original. So usually the original version uh, will be released to the public, but it will be redacted. And that's where you see those black lines going through, through a lot of the content. Well, this document was completely different, but it was being, it was being portrayed as the redacted version. And so that just kind of piques his curiosity again, like, why did they hide this? Uh, and, and you can read all about that in, in this book, but uh, that kind of starts him down a path to where, he, he says, I was, 
I was in the office of information sharing, but I was the only employee. So I was the office of information sharing. And he didn't start with copying documents. He started by reading them and it just piqued his curiosity. Uh, he created a program that, uh, that would collect a lot of these documents. It's called Heartbeat. And he did that to and, and gave access to other people so that they could kind of see the highlights for the day. But this al- also allowed him to, to collect these documents without without there being a, a notice. Like, you know, why is somebody um, in Hawaii getting all these documents? Well, he, he collects these and uh, decides that he's going to become a whistleblower. So he flies off to Hong Kong, ha- has been in touch with journalists and has these journalists meet him in Hong Kong. He, this is, this is important in an important distinction. He does not disclose a single document directly to the public. All the documents that he disclosed go through the journalists. He wanted to have journalists, he wanted to have a person or an institution vouch for the information. So he wanted these journalists to go through the information um, and and be able to communicate it with their audience and and then have it go through that instead of it coming directly from Snowden. And there are a number of reasons he does that, uh, all highlighted in this book. But um, it is important to distinguish that, that he did not give any documents directly to the public. Uh, from there, he completely white, he had four laptops that he took with him with 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 these documents uh, to Hong Kong, he completely wipes them before he knows that he's going to have to leave. And his his plan at that point is to go to Ecuador. Uh, Ecuador's a friendly country to to dissidents at that point or or people in his situation to where they would not extradite him to the United States. So Snowden is going to fly from Hong Kong to Moscow, Moscow to Cuba, Cuba to Venezuela, Venezuela to Ecuador. But when he gets to Russia, he finds out that the U.S. has um, nullified or rescinded his passport, and he can go no further. And to this day, he remains in Russia. Um, 2020, he's still in Russia. So that's that's kind of a, br- a brief overview of his life. But again, just bizarre and extraordinary to where this this was not some random guy who happened to get a job for the NSA and then you know came across some documents and and became a whistleblower like this man's whole life led up to that and yes i realize that that this is a book that is it it's a autobiography in a way it's 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 going to lead to that because that's what this book is about it's it's about the the revelations it's about the the things he exposed and so yes he's going to highlight things from his his youth that that show that that but i mean just things that are are way out of his control as well like all those things leading to to the person that he became really quite extraordinary in the the first thing that stuck out to me in this book The documents that Snowden released to journalists, who then released to the public, exposed the shift from targeted surveillance of individuals to the mass surveillance of entire populations within this bulk collection, and then the storage of that information. There's a scene in the book uh, from earlier where, where Snowden is going for that security clearance that I mentioned, and he's worried about a thing that ends up being the title of this book, and that is his permanent record. He didn't know what things in his past might come up 
in that application process. He, he had a lie detector test at, at one point, and he was, just, he was very nervous that, uh, that something would come up from his past. He had been in chat rooms and you know, spent a lot of time on, online when, when he was young, and so he was just worried that something would come up. And the second big thing that stuck out to me in, in this book is that when given the chance to delete the comments he made online that were embarrassing, he didn't do it. He did not delete them. And I want to read that section from the book. It's a, it's a few paragraphs, so stick with me here, but I, I, this is really important. When I went back and reread the posts, I cringed. Half of the things I'd said I hadn't even meant at the time. I just wanted attention, but I didn't fancy my odds of explaining that to the gray-haired man in horn-rimmed glasses peering over a giant folder labeled Permanent Record. The other half, the things I think I had meant at the time, were even worse because I wasn't that kid anymore. I'd grown up. It wasn't simply that I didn't recognize the voice as my own. It was now that I... I actively opposed its overheated hormonal opinions. I found that I wanted to argue with a ghost. I wanted to fight with that dumb, casually cruel self of mine who no longer existed. I couldn't stand the idea of being haunted by him forever, but I didn't know the best way to express my remorse and put some distance between him and me, or whether I should even try to do that. It was heinous to be so inextricably technologically bound to a past that I fully regretted but barely remembered. This might be the most familiar problem of my generation, the first to grow up online. We were able to discover and explore our identities almost totally unsupervised, with hardly a thought spared for the fact that our rash remarks and profane banter were being preserved for perpetuity, and that one day we might be expected to account for them. I'm sure everyone who had an internet connection before they had a job can sympathize with this. Surely everyone has, ha, has that one post that embarrasses them, or that text or email that could get them fired. My situation was somewhat different, in that most of the message boards of my day would let you delete your old posts. I could put together one tiny script, not even a real program, and all of my posts would be gone in under an hour. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. Trust me, I considered it. But ultimately, I couldn't. Something kept preventing me. It just felt wrong. To blank my posts from the face of the earth wasn't illegal, and it wouldn't even have made me ineligible for a security clearance had anyone found out. But the prospect of doing so bothered me nonetheless. It would have only served to reinforce some of the most corrosive precepts of online life, that nobody is ever allowed to make a mistake. And anybody who does make a mistake must answer for it forever. What mattered to me wasn't so much the integrity of the written record, but that of my soul. I didn't want to live in a world where everyone had to pretend that they were perfect, because that was a world that had no place for me or my friends. To erase those comments would have been to erase who I was, where I was from, and how far I'd come. To deny my younger self would have been to deny my present self's validity. I decided to leave the comments up and figure out how to live with them. I even decided that the true fidelity to this stance would require me to continue posting. In time, I'd outgrow these new opinions too, but my initial impulse remains unshakable, if only because it was an important step in my own maturity. We can't erase the things that shame us or the ways we've shamed ourselves online. All we can do is control our reactions, whether we let the past oppress us or accept its lessons, grow, and move on. End quote. I know that was long. Thanks for for sticking with me there. But that man, I, I, it I'm, it amazes me 
uh, he had the technical ability to to erase things that might be embarrass, embarrassing to him or may keep him from a job in the future, but he decided not to do it. How relevant is that for today? And then the other discussion in in that particular segment. I mean, we're, we're seeing th- people get shamed for things that they did and said that were 10 years ago. And, and some of those things were abhorrent, and they deserve, to some degree, what, what they're getting. But by doing that, there, there's another side of that. We're also stunting growth. Because if you, if you can't make mistakes, you can't grow. And if you can't say the wrong thing, you can't learn the right thing. You, you can't work towards a truth if you're not allowed to make a mistake. And this came up for me in a very vivid way in, in a week or two ago where uh, I saw someone on, on Twitter where they had a town hall. They were, they were trying to get people together and share ideas and learn from one another. And one of the people made a comment that just blew up on social media. And it was, it was, I mean, you see the comment and, and you would, you would think it's, it's horrible, but that person just got shamed so badly for saying that. And the next day they, they came out and they, they were shaking and kind of, you know, apologizing in a video. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is so sad. Yes. He, he, he made a mistake when he said that. And maybe it, it, it was from some underlying deep thing in, in his, his heart or something, you know, who, who knows, but he made a mistake, but you've got to be able to make that mistake to grow. And to be shamed for that, and it, in in especially in in being in a town hall thing where he was trying to learn, he was trying to to grow, but to be shamed for that was really tragic. And I think Snowden nailed nailed that. I mean, in, in, he's writing this in 2019. Um, we can't erase the things that shame us or the way we've shamed ourselves online. Uh, what mattered to me wasn't so much the integrity of the written record, but that of my soul. I didn't want to live in a world where everyone had to pretend that they were perfect because that was a world that had no place for me or my friends. So again, the second thing that stuck me and struck, struck me in this book was that given the chance to, to delete embarrassing comments, Snowden didn't do so. Now into segment three and the one thing, my one key takeaway, and this is also the the third thing that really stuck out to me in this book, and it is this. This book does not exist without the Constitution. Edward Snowden does not do what he does without the Constitution. Let me let me explain, and I'm just going to start reading from uh, from a part of the book here. It was here that I performed the sacred rite and here being the CIA headquarters, it was here that I performed the sacred rite in which contractors never participate. I raised my hand to swear an oath of loyalty, not to the government or agency that now employed me directly, but to the U.S. Constitution. I solemnly swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I want to also read uh, from another part here. And uh, as part of Snowden's job, he had access to 
everyone's calendars. Uh, the NSA used SharePoint, and as the system admin, Snowden was in charge of everyone's calendars. And so he would go in and, and put in uh, all the holidays and that sort of thing, but he also put in Constitution Day. And um, there there was a, a just a really interesting part here, and this is a few few paragraphs. I liked reading the Constitution, partially because its ideas are great, partially because its prose is good, but really because it freaked out my coworkers. In an office where everything you printed had to be thrown into a shredder after you were done with it, someone would always be intrigued by the presence of hard copy pages lying on a desk. They'd amble over and ask, what have you got there? The Constitution. Then they'd make a face and back away slowly. On Constitution Day 2012, I picked up the document in earnest. I hadn't really read the whole thing in quite a few years, though I was glad to note that I still knew the preamble by heart. Now, however, I read through it in its entirety, from the articles to the amendments. I was surprised to be reminded that fully 50% of the Bill of Rights, the document's first 10 amendments, were intended to make the job of law enforcement harder. The 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Amendments were all deliberately crafted, designed to create inefficiencies and hamper the government's ability to exercise its power and conduct and conduct surveillance. This is especially true of the 4th, which protects people and their property from government scrutiny. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Translation. If officers of the law want to go rooting through your life, they first have to go through before a judge and show probable cause under oath. This means that they have to explain to a judge why they have reason to believe that you might have committed a specific crime or that specific evidence of a specific crime might be found on or in a specific part of your property. Then they have to swear that this reason has been given honestly and in good faith. Only if the judge approves a warrant will they be allowed to go searching, and even then only for a limited time. The Constitution was written in the 18th century, back when the only computers were abacuses, gear calculators, and looms, and it could take weeks or months for a communication across the ocean by ship. It stands to reason that computer files, whatever their contents, are our version of the Constitution's papers. We certainly use them like papers, particularly our word processing documents and spreadsheets, our messages and histories of inquiry. Data, meanwhile, is our version of effects. A catch-all term for all the stuff that we own, produce, sell, and buy online. That includes, by default, metadata, which is the record of all the stuff that we own, produce, sell, and buy online. A perfect ledger of our private lives. End quote. In, in other books for this project, the soul has played an integral part. So, for instance, in the Gulag Archipelago, nothing Solzhenitsyn says has any bearing unless the soul lives past this life. Likewise, for this book, the Constitution plays an integral part. Snowden did not take an oath to defend the people of the United States. He did not take an oath to defend the NSA or the government. He took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And that's what started bothering him. We would not have this book we would not have Snowden's revelations were it not for 
the Constitution. I mean, what what else would he have pointed to? Like dystopian novels? Hey guys, we 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 really shouldn't be doing bulk collection here because we might end up like oh 1984, or we might end up like Brave New World. That you know maybe he could have pointed that, but it would not have pricked his conscience like the oath that he swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. So it just, that's something that stuck out to me. I mean, I, I hear all the time, even people high up in the government, they will say that it is their job to protect the, the people of the United States. And yes, that's part of it. But the oath that, that they took up to the highest level is to support and defend, and in the president's case, to protect the Constitution of the United States. I want to close out by reading a few paragraphs here uh, about privacy. And these are some of the most famous from this book. Uh, I've seen these show up in other places, but uh, this is this is quite quite good. The word privacy itself is somewhat empty because it is essentially indefinable or overdefinable. Each of us has our own idea of what it is. Privacy means something to everyone. There is no one to whom it means nothing. It's because of this lack of common definition that citizens of pluralistic, technologically sophisticated democracies feel that they have to justify their desire for privacy and frame it as a right. But citizens of democracies don't have to justify that desire. The state instead must justify its violation. To refuse to claim your privacy is actually to cede it, either to, to a state trespassing, its constitutional restraints, or to a private business. There is simply no way to ignore privacy, because a citizen's freedoms are interdependent. To surrender your own privacy is really to surrender everyone's. You might choose to give it up out of convenience, or under the popular pretext that privacy is only required by those who have something to hide. But saying that you don't need or want privacy because you have nothing to hide is to assume that no one should have, or could have, to hide anything, including their immigration status, unemployment history, financial history, and health records. You're assuming that no one, including yourself, might object to revealing to anyone information about their religious beliefs, political affiliations, and sexual activities as casually as some choose to reveal their movie and music tastes and reading preferences. Ultimately, saying that you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different from saying that you don't care about freedom of speech because you have nothing to say or that you don't care about freedom of the press because you don't like to read, or that you don't care about freedom of religion because you don't believe in God, or that you don't care about the freedom of to peaceably assemble because you're a lazy, antisocial agoraphobe. Just because this or that freedom might not have meaning to you today doesn't mean that it doesn't or won't have meaning tomorrow to you or to your neighbor, or to the crowds of principal dissidents I was following on my phone who were protesting halfway across the planet, hoping to gain just a fraction of the freedom that my country was busily dismantling, end quote. To recap, I have a set of books that I consider important. I, I kind of have them in my head that I, I know that these, these are the important books. These, these say something. These should be read widely and they are important to our understanding of our times and to the world. I consider this to be one of those important books. It's a coming of age story. It's a story of a disenchantment. Uh, it contains really important information that you should know in terms of how your information is collected. 
both the information that you put out there and other information that you have no idea is being collected and stored. It contains tips on how to protect yourself and common fallacies people fall for with technologies. It also has a section at the end of Snowden's girlfriend's diary. So when he goes to Hong Kong, I mean, she, he, it, it, what he tells in the book is that he does not tell her anything. So even when he goes to Hong Kong, he, he leaves her a note that I, I had to take a trip, doesn't tell her where he's going or anything. And so the, the diary starts from that point and then all the way through to where, uh, where Snowden starts being on the news and, and all sorts of craziness. And there, there's a part in her diary where, uh, she says, Ed, what have you done? And, but it was really interesting to see the story from, from that point of view to, from his girlfriend and, and now wife who has joined him in, in Russia. Uh, Snowden was on the Joe Rogan podcast in October of last year. If you've not heard that, it was, it was really good. Rogan just basically let Snowden talk for, for three hours. And so it was very interesting. So if you don't get a chance to read the book, uh, I'll link to that episode in the show notes. Uh, it just, please excuse the language. Rogan, uh, Rogan <laughs> likes to use a lot of, uh, a lot of different, different words. So if you're interested in, in stats for this book, it took me 10 and a half hours to read it. That was over four days. So it's 84 pages per day, which is on the high end for me. Uh, I couldn't put this one down. I took a ton of notes. I mean, the, the entire back two pages of, of my copy of the book are filled with notes. So in that 10 and a half hours, uh, I took a lot of notes. So I, I don't think it would take you as long to read the book uh, if you're not taking uh, that many notes. You can get through it a lot faster. As for who suggested it, I, no one in particular. It's just a book that I wanted to read, and I'm glad I did. I hope you read it too. too. Uh, I, as I mentioned, it is an important book, and it'll help you understand a lot of our current time. I thought the, the discussion about... Um, information online and, and how that could be embarrassing, but also a part of growing up and just the necessity of being able to make mistakes online was quite interesting. And then Snowden's life is just interesting. And all that led up to who he, who he became, uh, I found the whole thing fascinating. So I would really be curious to hear from you if you have the opposite view of Snowden. If you think he is a criminal, if you think he should come back to the States to, to await trial under the Espionage Act, I'd, I'd really like to hear from you because um, I, I want to hear how you came to that point of view. Um, so please email me at eric at booksoftitans.com if that is your your thinking. I, I, I would be curious to, to, to learn about that side because I've, I've been um, sympathetic to Snowden the entire time. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Um, as I mentioned, I'd love to hear from you. You can also go to, to the contact page on the Books of Titans website. I have my, my shipping address there. You can send me a letter. I'd love to hear from you that way uh, in a, or, or by email. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And the website is also stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in a couple weeks covering Range by David Epstein. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm-hmm.